am not the person that you want to sit next to on an airplane. Not because I will talk your ear off or because I take up too much leg room, clearly, but because I am terrified of flying. For me to get through a flight without crying, hyperventilating, or grabbing your arm accidentally and leaving bruises is a very rare occasion. And as quiet as I try to be in the middle of these panic attacks, it's hard not to notice a person sitting next to you or across from you who's curled up into a ball and breathing into a blanket. <laughs> now, for all the complaints and stories we hear about air travel these days, I have to say that I've experienced a very different side of it. Because no matter how many times I have experienced this fear, no matter how many times I've broken down in public, there has always been someone on a plane who has reached out to help me. Most memorably and recently last year, I was flying up to Seattle and began to hit turbulence. And of course, I began to cry and to panic. And a stewardess flight attendant walked by. And she came to check on me, as was her job, to make sure I was okay. And I told her I would be fine. I promised I wasn't going to try to open any doors or do anything crazy. And that should have been or could have been the end of the story. But a minute later, she comes back. See, she had gone to the front of the plane and gotten a bar of chocolate and a magazine. And she came and sat down in the seat that was next to me and empty. And she held my hand until we got through the turbulence and I was calm. See, everyone would have understood if she had kept doing her job. I would have understood if she had kept doing her job. She didn't have to do that. And this is what a lot of the storybooks and the movies rarely show us or tell us about life. We tend to think of our biggest choices in life as the choices between good and evil, between right and wrong. And there are some of those moments, to be sure, where you will have to make a choice between right and wrong and good and evil. But I have found, in fact, that most of our life is not lived in that place, but instead between fine and something more. For the last five weeks, we have been studying the story of Ruth, a story about God's love and inclusion for those on the margin, the poor, the immigrant, the widow, the barren, it's a story about choice and sacrifice, about truth and faith, about sorrow and hope. And chapter 4 continues the themes of the previous chapters. We find ourselves meeting up with Boaz as he fulfills the promise he made to Ruth at the end of the last chapter. He approaches the person known to be her closest kinsman redeemer to see if that man will marry Ruth and redeem her father-in-law's land. A few weeks ago, Dale helped us to understand just what a kinsman redeemer was. But if you missed it and you haven't yet had a chance to listen to it, a kinsman redeemer at its most basic in Israel was a person, a close family member that was required to help out other family members when they were in need. This looked very different in different ways. It could have been a leveret, someone who married their brother's widow in order to continue a family line. It could have been a redeemer who bought sold family property. But Boaz was letting this man know that his responsibility would be to buy back that land 
and also wed the widow Ruth so she could continue the line of her father-in-law and her husband. Now here, if you were a student of ancient Israel or perhaps had some Jewish background, you would pause for a second in confusion. You'd begin to wonder if there was more to what's going on here than met the eye because the truth is there was no requirement for anyone to marry Ruth. After all, she was not the actual daughter of Elimelech. This wasn't Malon's brother so that they could continue the family bloodline. There is no tie of Ruth other than her promise to Naomi. Ruth and Boaz are both putting forth an idea that is far beyond what is required of them or of others. In many ways, the entire book of Ruth is about this kind of decision. People who go beyond what is fine, who go beyond the minimum requirements. In chapter one, you'll remember we're presented with two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpha. Here in chapter four, we have two redeemers. We have the unnamed man and we have Boaz. In a story bookended by two comparisons of the choices people make and what that means for their life. At the beginning of our story, Orpha turns back to her family. No one blames her. There's no condemnation, there's no punishment, there's no shame in her choice. Naomi told her to turn around. It was the sensible thing to do, and she did it. She had fulfilled all of the minimum requirements of being a good daughter-in-law, and she was returning to her life. And in the same way, when the unnamed redeemer first hears the case from Boaz, he agrees to do his duty as per the law, to redeem the land. But then when Boaz goes further and he tacks on that you need to marry Ruth as well, something far above and beyond the law and the traditional call, he steps aside and lets Boaz step up. And again, there is seemingly no condemnation for this unnamed man. There's no shame. No one seems to blame him for not going above and beyond his duty. In contrast to their counterparts, however, both Ruth and Boaz go far beyond what is required by simply law or custom. Ruth leaves her family. She becomes Naomi's daughter. She agrees to bear a child and give, her, give that child to Naomi to continue Naomi's family's name. Boaz gives generously far more than the law required. He opens his fields. He gives protection. He lets Ruth take more than he had to. He agrees to marry her even though he has no direct responsibility to her. As I said before, life is not usually a choice of good and evil, but between fine and great. Recently, I saw a movie clip that struck me. It's a black background, and a woman comes forward and sits down. She's in her 80s. She looks at the camera, and she begins to speak in French. My name is Francine Christophe. I was born on the 18th of August, 1933. 
1933 is the year Hitler came to power. Here, she holds up a star. This is my star. I wore it on the chest, of course, like all Jews. It's big, isn't it? Especially on a child's chest. I was only eight years old at the time. Something truly extraordinary happened in my camp, Bergen-Belsen. I recall that we were children of prisoners of war and therefore privileged, so we had the right to bring a little bag from France with two or three little things, one woman a little piece of chocolate, one a sugar cube, one a handful of rice. Mama had brought two pieces of chocolate. She'd tell me, we're keeping this for the day when I see that you are really completely flat on the ground, done for. I will give you this chocolate, and maybe it will help you get back up. Now, there was this woman who had been deported with us, and she was pregnant. Obviously, you couldn't tell. She was so skinny. All the same delivery day arrived, and she went to the dispensary with my mother, who was the barracks head. Before leaving, my mother said to me, do you remember that little piece of chocolate? Yes, Mama. How do you feel? Good, Mama. I'm okay. Well, if you'll allow me this piece of chocolate, I will take it to our friend Helen because giving birth here, she might die. And if I give her the chocolate, it might help her. Yes, Mama, take it. Helen gave birth to a baby, a sickly, tiny thing. She ate the chocolate. She didn't die. And she came back to the barracks. The baby never cried, never, didn't even moan. After six months, the liberation came, and we undid all those rags. The baby screamed. That was its birth. We brought it back to France, this tiny little thing, six months old, minuscule. A few years ago, my daughter said to me, Mama, if you had had psychologists or psychiatrists when you got back, it would have gone better for you. And I said to her, certainly, but there weren't any. And no one would have thought of it even if there had been. But you have given me a good idea. We will do a conference about it. So I organized a conference. What if there had been shrinks in 1945? When we got back from the camps, how would it have gone? Very interesting. Everyone had good ideas. It was a very good conference. And then a woman arrived and said, I live in Marseille. I'm a doctor of psychiatry. And before doing my presentation, I have something to give to Francine Christophe. That's me. She digs in her pocket. She pulls out a piece of chocolate. She gives it to me, and she says, I'm the baby. One little piece of chocolate. One small act of extraordinary kindness. No one would have blamed a little girl in a concentration camp for wanting to keep her chocolate, especially knowing the recipient most likely would die. And yet, with her one act, Francine became part of a far bigger story than she ever could have imagined, a story much bigger than her own. The call in our lives by God is that same call, to be part of something bigger, 
we could go through life doing the minimum and being fine. I truly don't believe that God punishes us for doing so. But I do think we end up missing out on so much more. And I think God wants something so much more for us than fine. When we learn from what we learn from Ruth and Boaz, from Francine, is that when we go beyond fine, when we live a more generous kind of life, we find ourselves being invited into God's story instead of our own. Because Ruth and Boaz did more than they had to, they end up having a son, a son who is the grandfather to King David. And the genealogy at the end isn't just a boring list of names. No, it reminds us of another genealogy that begins the story of Matthew. And we're reminded as people who follow Jesus, not only of Ruth and Boaz being part of David's life, but being part of the life of Jesus himself. The story of the gospel is a story of extravagant love that never stops at fine, never looks for the minimum it can do to get by. We're invited by Jesus to be people who live in this mentality, not of fear and scarcity, but of abundance, generosity, and fearlessness in the face of the future. People who are not trying to hold on to what we have, but are willing to give away everything for another. The child who's born to Ruth and Boaz is named Obed. Literally, he who serves God. When we live life like Boaz and Ruth, like Francine, that which comes and is born from us will always be in the service of God. I imagine one day, all of us standing before him and the throne. And perhaps we will look back at our lives and we will say, but we got here fine, didn't we? And I think he will look at us with compassion and love and say, yes, my child, you got here fine. But don't you see, fine is never what I had planned for you. Every day we are given a choice to go beyond fine, to experience a bit of heaven on this side of eternity. A chance to hear a voice deep in our soul that we recognize that says, I am the baby. It is me that you have served with every act of grace. Amen.